everybody, and welcome to The Weird. Hi, it's episode 52. 52, the same number of cards in a playing deck. In a playing deck, the same number of playing cards in a deck. The same number of weeks in a year. Yes. Hey, I wonder if the number of cards in a deck coincides with the number of weeks in the year. Card lore is fascinating. Weren't, they, weren't playing cards invented by the French, right? I have no idea. I think they're, it's French. I just find that interesting, like the, the I, I, I don't know anything about it, but why a jack, a queen, a king? Like, wh- why the hearts? Why the different symbols in each family of cards? You know, they're very different. Yeah. Let's do some research on that, and uh, maybe we'll do uh, in one of our quick fire, quick rounds... Dan, I've got a grim tale uh, to weave this week, and I'm owning that right now. It's Is it about your move? No, my move was really, really smooth. Like your fridge? I still don't have a refrigerator, but that's a story for another day. I'm going to tell you uh, today the story of Nizino Island, which you have never heard of. No, I haven't. It's an unremarkable island in Siberia that was never really named. Mm. So the island has never been given a name. Uh, you'll hear it referred to as Nizino Island, and others call it Nizinsky Island. But people like us, who are really into folklore, mm-hmm. know it more as Cannibal Island. Ooh. Do you want to find out why? I do. And don't yell at me. I'm looking up on a map where it is. Oh, it's just Siberia. Yeah, I'm looking it up. It's in a really remote area. Well, I'm looking it up. You're, you're talking like I'm never going to find it. Oh, it says there's no matches. I told you there's no name. The island has no name. If you want to see where it is, I'll just wait until you finish your bullshit. Look up Nazino. <laughs> look up look up Nazino. Nazino. Just N-A-Z-I-N-O. That's the settlement that's closest to it. Okay. Okay. So this looks like it's near Monaco. Then you didn't find it. Is this really important? No. I found it. Okay. Thank you. So, I got to say, though, before I start getting into the details of this podcast, you know, and I'm very forthcoming about this, I don't know much about history. And the reason I don't know a lot about history is because of the way it was taught when I went to high school. It was all memorized dates, memorized names, and I don't have a good memory, so I didn't get into it. I just, I found it very daunting, and I immediately didn't want to learn it. I had no idea what a fucking dick Stalin was. Oh, Yeah, he was terrible. I had no idea. I knew who he was, and I knew that he wasn't popular, but I had no idea what he was like. Arguably worse than Hitler. I was just going to say, he's like right up there with Hitler. Mm -hmm. Different, different. Like Hitler was uh, a sociopath and, you know, murdered innocent people because of their faith or, you know, genetics, whereas Stalin was more of an ideologue. Well, the thing that I found that they, the um, trait that they both shared after reading a little bit more about Stalin is their extreme paranoia. Yes. These guys were so paranoid and, and just responded in really bad ways. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into that, but I just want to say that's one of the big takeaways uh, from me uh, researching this was, wow. Does this story take place in the Stalin era? It is. It's a Stalin era story. Ooh. You'll like it because it's history. In 1929, Joseph Stalin began a new era of atrocity known as collectivization. And basically, collectivization stated 
that all peasants in areas like the Ukraine would give up their possessions and be relocated to work on Soviet farms. And it was part of his plan to rid himself of the kulaks, which were wealthier members of the peasant class because he found them troublesome. The term was used basically, though, to describe anyone who didn't approve of Stalin's policies. So anyone who stood in the way of his collectivization efforts were either shot or imprisoned in the notorious gulags. Mm-hmm. And people still talk about the gulags to, to this day. However, by 1932, that approach had resulted in famine and severe overcrowding in the gulags. So in 1932, a gentleman named Genrik Yagoda came up with a really sinister solution to the mess that collectivization had become. So he thought, well, Soviets need food and the kulaks need to be punished. So why not make the kulaks establish farms? So he proposed that they would take 2 million kulaks, move them to Siberia and Kazakhstan, give them basic tools and force them to create and then work on farms. But Siberia is not exactly great farmland. It's, it's exactly, like permafrost. Yeah. Exactly. But his, his theory was they would feed themselves and would basically be exiled to some of the harshest land on earth. Mm-hmm. It seemed the perfect solution because it was the perfect compromise. So Soviet authorities were absolutely tireless in their search for kulaks and all as a result of Stalin's paranoia. And the police had quotas that they needed to fill. And their arrests were constant and sweeping. Horrible part is they targeted a lot of people who just didn't have passports or identification papers. And they would just arrest these people on the spot. Their only crime being that they didn't have passports. Yeah. And to get their quotas up, they would often surround popular areas like markets, gathering places, and arrest anyone who could not produce a passport. And the imprisoned people, arrested people, let's just say arrested for now, the arrested people included women and children. Now, I'm going to make a note here about the passport program. It wasn't new to uh, Russia. It was, in fact, a czarist method of keeping people shackled to the land that they were. And Stalin had just revived it for that very reason. Sorry, so not giving people passports was a, a way of controlling their ability to leave. Well, also, yes, exactly. And also having them kept them in in that area that they were in. The passport right. would say what region of Russia that they were in, and they were restricted to staying there. I didn't realize that was um, part of the, the SARS route. Yeah. yeah, I didn't either. That was a footnote. Yeah, and, and and that should be noted too. It's not like things were great before the communists came in. They were it was awful. It was it was terrible. Yeah. But it got worse, you know. It got really bad. Perhaps if Trotsky or Lenin had survived to see it through, maybe it wouldn't have gotten so bad, but I, I think it would have I don't know. It's a flawed system, man. They can be a very harsh people, man. Reading well, and some just of communism the stuff. communism in, in itself is harsh. It's yes. I mean, it's a false bottom. It, it you, in theory, you can't drop below a certain level, but it's also that that ceiling that you can't advance. The problem then, though, is the people calling the shots are inevitably above it and live exactly well. Stalin lived well, you know. And greed and hunger for power will always get in the way. Correct. One of Stalin's biggest enemies, and he would make sure that a lot of these people were uh, arrested, were people who are educated and who opposed him. 
a lot of writers, artists, poets, the normal kind of people that people who want to control a population fear, right? Yeah. So these are the kinds of people he was rounding up. It was horrible. The unfortunate people that were arrested for not having passports or other various crimes were loaded onto trains and they were shipped off to Tomsk. And Tomsk is a remote city in the very center of Russia. And a great deal of the people on these trains died on the journey, not too far off from how people were transported to the concentration camps in the atrocities of World War II. Russian officials in Siberia were not told that these people were coming. Oh, jeez. They had no idea. And then suddenly trains arrived and thousands of prisoners were dumped in the city of Tomsk. But there was no infrastructure in place to house or feed them. So by May 1933, there were 90,000 prisoners in Tomsk in Siberia. Wow. In a desperate attempt to deal with that crisis, they loaded 5,000 of those prisoners onto four lumber barges. And I've seen pictures of them. These are very rudimentary craft. And they were transported 800 kilometers to an unnamed island near an area called Nizino. This area is situated on the northern bank of the Ob River. Ob, O-B, O-B River. It's a very, very harsh remote location. Not many visitors. Nobody goes there. People just basically work, eke out a living and survive on day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. And they're also not super fond of strangers. They keep to themselves. It's just their part of the world. Leave us alone. We're fine. Mm -hmm. The prisoners were kept below deck on the barges and were given... 200 grams of bread per day. Now, just so our listeners can kind of get an idea, that was 100 grams less than was given to the starving prisoners in Auschwitz. Many, uh, we've, we've actually seen photographs of them. So 200 grams of bread per day is what each prisoner was given. Jeez. A great number of those prisoners, understandably, died on the journey. Now, the island they were being transported to wasn't like a giant island. It was three kilometers long and 600 meters wide. So do the math in your head. Three kilometers, 600 meters wide and 5,000 prisoners are headed to that island. And it was mostly swampland. Mm. It wasn't dry ground. It was murky. It was mucky. It was horrible. Well, the barges finally arrived at the island on May the 18th, 1933. There was nothing on the island when the prisoners arrived. No shelter, no tools, nothing. The prisoners were then told to construct a settlement, but they had been provided with no resources, no tools. And remember, Dan, what are you doing? I'm looking at the map. I'm just looking at the island. Remember, I had said there's nothing there. It's just I'm trees. looking at it. It's neat. I like the visual. I'm, I still like pictures in my storybook. I'm listening to you. So remember I told you a lot of the people that arrived there and who had been arrested were intellectuals. Yeah, and I automatically have a disconnect with them. They, they were city people. They had no capacity to build their own houses, right. let alone grow crops effectively. They had no agricultural backgrounds and no agricultural skills. Well, that skills. was part of the big problem with that whole movement. You're, you have this vision of the people, you know, dropping everything they've known and doing what the government says, but you're not even going to provide them with the skills and training to do it. Or the tools. 
or the tools. Not a shovel, not a hoe, nothing. I've got a staggering number to share with you now. On the very first night on the island, of the 5,000 prisoners that were there, 295 died from exposure. Mm -hmm. The very first night. Mm -hmm. So 300 people died the first night. Well, they're weakened, too, from the journey to get there. Well, also, it's relentless snow and wind. It's May. The guards continued to give each prisoner... Uh, 200 grams of sustenance, but this time it wasn't bread. It was just flour. So the desperation, the prisoners mixed the flour with the river water, and it resulted in a massive outbreak of dysentery. Yeah. It is now May the 22nd, four days after the barges had first arrived at the The island. I'm sorry, the level of cruelty to do that to people. Oh, absolutely. And all accounts have said that the soldiers who were put in charge of this were sadists. Their behavior was sadistic, was textbook sadism. Yeah. Much like the guards and people who were put in charge of the death camps in in Poland and Germany. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) People were dying in droves. Now, the guards suddenly didn't return to provide more flour. The prisoners started to freak out. They were starving to death. So they decided they would stage an impromptu protest. They stood on the banks of the river where they could see the guards because the island isn't too far from the shore. And they started to shout and make noise until finally the guards on the mainland heard them and crossed over to the island. At that time, the prisoners demanded food and the guards agreed to provide further flour rations. However, oh, this gets bad. They ordered the prisoners to divide themselves into brigades consisting of 150 prisoners per brigade. And one person from each of those brigades would be appointed as leader and would be responsible for distributing the flour rations. So a number of violent criminals came forward and immediately identified themselves as the chosen leaders. They had never been chosen. There was no discussion. That makes me think of like The Walking Dead. Yeah. Right? Where the shit of society rises to the top and takes over. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. Yeah. So these thugs came forward and nobody would stand in their way because they were, a lot of them were just physically really intimidating. They were given the flower, which of course they refused to share. Or they would share in return to, for sexual favors and things like that. Right? Many prisoners in desperation tried to escape. I was just going to ask this. Yeah, a lot of them built makeshift rafts, but they didn't realize that the current was stronger than they thought. The rafts immediately fell apart and they drowned. And the water's freezing. Yeah, they drowned immediately in the frigid waters. They were swept away. And many others, when they arrived on the riverbank, were shot by the guards immediately as soon as they surfaced. The guards thought it was fun. It was just sport for them. And if they did manage to escape, the guards who were actually bored would then hunt them in the wilderness for sport and wager on it. Hmm. So that's the level of atrocity that we're dealing with. By May the 25th, just one week after they had first reached that island, the camp doctor first noticed, formally noticed, signs of cannibalism. He reported this information to his superiors, who instructed him to just ignore it. And like I said before, the guards were cruel and horrible. They would actually routinely just fire at the prisoners from the mainland. They would just see them on the on the shore and just, just shoot at them, just to see if they could hit them. They would routinely kill them. 
They would also, for fun, throw bits of food into a ravenous crowd and then laugh as they fought and killed each other for it. And they would also, the guards, trade morsels of food for sex with female prisoners. Unbelievably, barges continued to arrive at the island with even more prisoners. And by late May, an additional 1,000 prisoners had arrived. And the situation had completely devolved into utter chaos. And no, what are they sleeping in? They're sleeping on the ground. Yeah, just in the bare, like, freezing temperatures. They probably don't even have warm clothes. They're huddling together. I've seen some pictures, so people who had a little bit of capacity to construct would make, like, lean-to shelters. But there were no resources to build. Like, no access to cut down trees. They would break branches off and basically make little lean-to shelters, but there was nothing to make really, you know, uh, the kind of infrastructure that they needed to survive. It's just unbelievable. It's funny, I'd never heard of any of this, but, you know, the Soviets aren't the most forthcoming. True. So, by this time, the stronger prisoners had banded together in gangs, of course. Mm -hmm. And murder for food was an everyday reality of life on the island. In early June... With all other options having been exhausted, the remaining prisoners began to eat the bodies of the dead or the near dead in order to survive. Uh, Right? Okay. There's a group of rural Russian folk known as the Ostiaks who inhabit the uh, Nazino area. I had mentioned before these people. And they had recently noticed the increased boat traffic on the river and that the boats would inevitably dock at the island. And they also heard the screams and wails and occasional gunshots. On a May night in 1933, Fiofila Bailina's parents receive a female visitor. And the Bailina family are a family of the Ostiaks. These are the, not indigenous, but the folk who've lived in this area for as long as as anyone can remember. They'd be indigenous. Yeah, I guess indigenous. And they receive a female visitor um, she's accompanied by two men. And these men are uh, guards, Soviet guards. This woman is barely able to walk and her legs are bundled in rags. And the guards explain that she's being transported to another camp for safety. The woman explains that she's 40 years old, but the family, the Bailina family, claims that she looks to be a, a woman of 80. The woman is very weak and in a lot of pain, so they take her to a back room and gently remove the coverings from her legs. And young Fiofila, who is just a child at the time, is horrified to see that the muscle on the woman's calves has been cut off. When asked what had happened, the woman claimed, they did that to me on the island of death, cut oh, them off and cooked them. God. So by that time, what was happening is that they were just taking bits and pieces from people and leaving them alive. So they could no longer just feast on the dead because that had been exhausted. And they would, they had first started with the dead, then they moved to the near dead, people who were sick and obviously on the way out. But but then after that, they just would eat whoever they could catch. And they're not cooking this meat either, I guess. Yes, they are. Oh, they do have fire. They are. But that doesn't make it better. Just tastier. Yeah. I guess, right? So, uh, there's a lot of other stories that I'm not actually going to tell you. Okay, why? Uh, Because they're just super graphic and super gross. There was one where a woman uh, who had been trading uh, sex for food 
was caught when she returned to the island and they did horrible things to her. And I don't want to get into it against its, it's again, it's violence on against women, which I don't really want to, you know, nope, talk about. I'm, I'm the same way. But let me just say that that happened and a lot more happened. A lot of there's kids no, were there's killed. There's no need for the gratuitous stuff, right? No, no, but this isn't, this isn't a, a shock cast. This is a, a podcast dealing with strange well, tales. Well, speak for yourself, but I like to think <laughs> our openings are pretty shocking. I guess. So this is, uh, this is, uh, yeah, blech. Okay. Um, by mid-June of 1933, the authorities couldn't ignore the situation any longer, and they decided that the settlement needed to be dismantled. So they decided that the remaining prisoners would be relocated to other more established work camps. Okay. 6,700 people had been transported to the island. 2,200 survived. That's how many people were dead. When they vacated the island, the Soviets just left the bodies on the island, not buried. They just left them where they were to decompose. No attempt was made to bury them, and they were shown no respect or consideration whatsoever. So we might not know about any of this. However, thankfully, there was a man named Vasily Velichko who lived in the area, and he was a communist instructor. I love that term. He was a communist instructor. I don't know what he instructed on. It wasn't very specific, but it just it just sounds communist. I'm a communist instructor. Sit. Indoctrinate the people. Probably. So Vasily, Vasily, I guess it would be Vasily, in July 1933, he had heard rumors of the atrocities that had occurred on the mysterious island. And his heart was moved and he decided that he would go and investigate. And this was not an official investigation. He was just acting as a concerned citizen. When he finally reached the island in August of 1933, he just saw a very idyllic island. There were lots of trees and shrubs and long grasses swaying in the wind. However, as he started to move inland and upon closer inspection, he was horrified to find half-eaten bodies just hidden from view by abundant vegetation. They were just lying there, still decaying, and they were everywhere. He was absolutely blown away by how many corpses were just out, lying on the ground. Mm -hmm. How many people left the island? Like, what do you mean, left the island? I guess, uh, lived. 2,200. Out of the 5,000. Out of 6,700. Oh, 6,700 the total. Yeah. Holy shit. 2,200 survived. Holy shit. In a month. In one month. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. You know, another thing that, um, that I took away from this is, my God, the Ukraine's been through a lot. Oh. Oh. Oh, it's brutal. The Soviets just won't leave them alone. I believe Stalin was from the Ukraine. So why was he such a dick about it? Well, I don't know. And and don't quote me on that. I'm going to look it up. Uh, oh, sorry. No, he was a Georgian. Georgia? He's a Georgian. Georgia. Which is also, well, now it's own country. My God, he hated the peasant class. Well, he was just a bully. So Velichko, after seeing the atrocity that was the island conducted interviews with the locals and anyone he could find to try and ascertain what had happened. And through the course of his investigation, he began to get a very clear picture of the tragedy that had befallen these unfortunate prisoners. He put his findings into a very compact 11 page report. He took all of it 
and condensed it into 11 pages. And that report he then submitted to officials in Moscow. Wow. I'm actually going to quote some of his report for you right now. Here we go. The grass on the island was head high, but locals who went there to gather berries returned after discovering corpses in the grass and stick shelters full of skeletons. People burned to death alive while sleeping close to the fires. They died from exhaustion and cold. Immediately after the snow and frost came the rains and freezing winds, and the people were still left without food. Every fourth or fifth day, some rye flour was brought to the island and distributed to the settlers, a few hundred grams each. After getting the ration, the people ran to the water and mixed it with the flour in their hats and ate it. Many people just ate the flour as it was, and since it was a powder, many suffocated from breathing it in. So that's part of his, uh, uh, his report that he submitted to Moscow. Well, we know how things go over there then. Velechko was abruptly fired from his job. <laughs> yeah. He was yeah. kicked out of the Communist Party, and his report was buried in the Russian archives. However, a number of authorities had read the report and put safeguards in place to ensure that Cannibal Island would and could not ever happen again. And the guards who had been in charge of the prisoners were thrown out of the Communist Party and imprisoned. Oh, oh. Yeah, but for like three months to a year. Oh. And these, these were the guards that were routinely shooting people from the mainland. Well, I'm, I'm, but I'm still surprised that they did anything. I think they had to. I just think too many people had seen the report. Mm. The resettlement program was abandoned, and it was never revisited. And instead, the Soviets focused their efforts on forced labor camps, which we know them for. Velichko's report stayed buried in the Russian archives until 1994. And why do you think it came out in 1994? Well, the Soviet Union had collapsed. Exactly. Boris Yeltsin's in charge. Yep, and it was finally uncovered. And people were absolutely stunned at the contents of the report. Mm. And the details of the whole tragedy finally came to light. In 1993, a memorial cross was placed on the island to commemorate the atrocity. And it reads as follows. To the victims of political repressions, 1933 to 1993. And each year, the residents of Nizino place a wreath on that memorial location. Mm. There has never been a volume of prisoners die so quickly as in that particular incident. Even compared to like the Nazi death camps? Yeah, because it was one month. Yeah. It was one month. And the fact that like 295 people died the first night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is the story of the island of Nizino. It's short. That's it. Oh, that's uh, hard. Uh, that's hard and sad. Nobody survived who survived ever gave an account of life on the island well that's that was my follow-up question to you was the people that survived those 2000 mm -hmm. where did they go to work camps yeah they were relocated to various work camps some of them escaped and just lived in obscurity because they didn't want to fall under soviet gaze right because mm -hmm. there were a lot of people there who were intellectual enemies of the state right so they just mm -hmm. wanted to remain out of sight can you hear the thunder is that my place or yours not me Oh, yeah. I'm getting a big thunderstorm. It'll be Garth here. Brooks and a thunder roll. No, but this goes back to even last week's episode, but even more so in Russia. You could disappear. Like, there's vast areas of that 
country where there are no people. It's a little like Canada. It's it's a lot like Canada. Our population is very is condensed in a very few specific That's areas right. here, and Russia is very much the same. There was a lot of untamed wilderness there, like a lot. Mm-hmm. It still is. Yeah, but I, again, I had no idea that Stalin was so, I, so ruthless. I wonder, yeah, if people were able to disappear into the woods. But you would be so weak, and it would be so hard. Well, imagine if you or I, if that happened to you or I. We're intellectual people. We're not. I have no agricultural skills. Imagine if I was suddenly deposited in a forest today. I wouldn't survive. I like to think, and I'm not kidding, I like to think that if that ever happened, I would be gone. Like, I'd disappear before that it got to that point. What? Well, I was watching the HBO miniseries, uh, The Plot Against America. You watch that? No. So it's a revisionist history uh, where Lindbergh beats Roosevelt in 19, what is it, 41 or 40 or 42? I can't remember the year, but he beats him. And it's a no, I didn't realize this till after the fact, but Lindbergh was a known Nazi sympathizer. Oh, really? You know, Charles yeah, Lindbergh, of course. Right? Lindbergh, Lindbergh baby. baby and all yeah, yeah, yeah. Who we, ta- we talked about him a long time ago in the Third Man episode. Uh, where he, he he claimed to have had yes. a third man experience when he was flying. Anyway, so he, the the show depicts that when it follows a Jewish family in New Jersey and oh, what's going on. Like the Jewish people are terrified because this guy who's friends with, and this is true, he was actually, he did have like von Ribbentrop and people like that he had been friends with. So you can see the beginnings of maybe that kind of Nazi movement happening in the States. Some people dig their heels in and go, no, no, this is my country. This is where I live and I have a right to be here. And there are other people that just get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. That would be me. And in that show, they move up to Canada. That's what you mean. Okay. Well, I I readily admit if I'd lived in the States during the Vietnam War, I would have been a draft dodger Mm -hmm. because I would have felt I had no business being there. We know a couple. Oh, guys. I do. I know some very good people who actually came to Canada and prospered, thrived. Yeah. Um, I want to tell you something too, because you mentioned HBO and I wanted to tell you this earlier and I forgot. Can you believe it? They canceled Lovecraft Country. What? Yeah. I know. Oh. No, but the good thing is, is nobody can understand HBO's thought processes. They're the most bizarre place on earth. The woman who was responsible for it has gone over to Apple TV and signed a big deal oh. to produce more stuff. But Lovecraft Country won't be happening again and no one understands why. Nobody understands why. Maybe they're just too focused on the fucking Sopranos prequel. I want to go back to your Cannibal Island, though, please. I want to go back to Cannibal Island. Sounds like a reality show. So, and I thought, and there were no, there was no one who tried to stay behind on the island. There was no weird stuff like that happening. Where no, and no, no cannibals who maybe escaped and feasted on locals. Well, they weren't cannibals. They were forced well, they to. Were. No, cannibals means like you're culturally a cannibal. These people had been forced into acts of cannibalism out of desperation. Right. A lot of them got sick from it too. Um, well, yeah. The um, by the way, the locals too. The only reason they ever visited the island, the locals that I talked about, uh, the Ostiaks, were um, to to harvest tree bark. It was a good place to harvest tree bark. That was they. Nobody ever settled it. You couldn't farm what there. Did they do with the tree bark. I don't know. You couldn't. You, you couldn't farm there. It, the, the island was too swampy. Well, he, and here's a question for you then. Another one. Any ghost stuff? Nothing that was reported. Apparently, these are very hearty people, hearty, but they also keep to themselves. 
So it would be the Ostiacs and they didn't, haven't really said anything. But you know what? I also tried to find out, dear listener, trust me, I'm not providing you with a full picture here on purpose. I don't know what happened to those bodies. I assume maybe the locals decided to go over and start digging graves. I don't know. It was never, Mm -hmm. because there were thousands of bodies just lying on the island. Like apparently, Velechko said, you couldn't walk five feet without stumbling across a corpse. Well, yeah. So what, where did the bones go? And can you go there now? Yes. You can. Well, you could if you wanted. There's a memorial there. Right. Okay, that's right. Yeah, they go there every year to sort of commemorate what had happened. So the bodies are are gone. Yeah, but where did they go? I Maybe at some point the Soviets came and did the right thing. Well, or just no, or they were trying to cover it. Yeah, up. and but at least buried them some in some way, in some shape, or, or dumped f- them in the river. Like or, it's horrible that they would just be lying there, exposed to the elements. So mm. that's the story of Cannibal Island. It's a really obscure story. I had to really yeah. dig for it. How the hell did you find that? Did Brad Vardy send you that one? No, no, no. I stumbled across it in a, in a uh, in an article about something else. Yeah. Okay. And like I said, it was a good education for me because I didn't really know anything about Stalinist Russia. Now I do, and now I hate him. You liked him before? Well, I didn't know anything about him. And every time I see him, it's the same picture of him with a pipe. See, don't you own a jacket like he had? No. It looks uncomfortable. Like a Frankenstein jacket? No, I don't. It looks uncomfortable. I thought you went through a sort of Soviet-era military look. No, I did not. I never did. I never was really into military costume although punks used to um, a lot of punks i knew had military stuff you did encourage me once to buy green army looking wool pants they were like an expensive really knit yeah and and like they were flexible it's weird you know i must have been on like quaaludes through all of that because i don't remember that at all that's when i had the buckle shoes that you hated and you made me buy new the shoes crucible that- shoes because you looked like you were from the cast of the crucible and you were going to burn a witch in salem <laughs> i had those shoes because of a show that I was in, and I care. I, those are char- my character's shoes that I, I was just allowed to keep them after. Well, then later on, I saw one of the worst horror movies in the world, Leprechaun, and he has those shoes. <laughs> it's true. He has those little buckly shoes, but they're much higher heels for the Leprechaun because he's a little guy. So he wants to, you know, he wants to look tall and proud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a terrible. Movie. I never watched them. I know it, but I've never watched There's a whole them. slew of them. There's like Leprechaun 2, Le- yeah. Le- Leprechaun 3. I can't. Yeah, um, I'm watching right now on Netflix that Summer of Fear series. That's like oh, is that good? They're kind of it's kind of like the Stranger Things of horror movies. It's good and it's bad. There's some things about it I really like and some things I really hate. Do you know what okay. I binged? I got to tell you, since you and I like went on break and I had time on my hands and stuff to just sit around and relax, I watched, believe it or not, a sitcom. Because you know I'm spiritually opposed to most sitcoms. Mm-hmm. I watched Superstore, the whole thing. I've heard a lot of people have told me about that. I haven't seen it. I loved it. And I didn't like it when I first saw it, like a couple of years ago. I saw a couple of episodes and didn't like it. But then I watched it again. And man, there are some moments in that show that are just priceless. Well worth it. Cool. Okay. Mark McKinney in that? McKinney's in that. Yeah. He's completely over the top too, which is appropriate to the role that he's he's playing Mm -hmm. but i actually it's just a really fun summer thing and you can just put it on and eat your dinner and relax well speaking of shows that i want to watch but i'm currently reading the book and i'll finish the book then watch it the it's the hbo uh the outsiders the stephen king story oh is that on now or the outsider sorry yes i saw that uh i've seen it did you read it too no 
I haven't read Stephen King books in about 10 years. I've gotten into a, a kick of going back and re- there was some that old ones I had never read, like Salem. Oh, that's great. A couple years the, ago. Or the first, his first like 10, 15 years are his best years. I agree. I agree. But then there's some good ones that have come out that, because I read one, I can't remember which one that I really didn't like, but I read like Mr. Mercedes. That was great. And, uh, and now this one, the outsider, it's freaking dark. Yeah. It's a weird, the cave and all that. Yeah. It's a weird story. Don't, 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 don't. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. But anyway, I'm enjoying that. And I, and I'm looking at the cast that they got for the, the miniseries and it looks. Well, there's a, uh, also, a movie adaptation of one of his books just dropped with Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore, and it's some um, Lysy story, which is all I also never read. Okay, yeah. and that was from the period when he was like the girl who loved Tom Gordon. And yeah, those kind yeah. of books, which are more psychological. So I'm gonna give it a. I'm gonna check it out and see what it's all about. Yeah, he's worth going back to. He he just is a good oh, writer. Is. I'm I'm due actually to reread it. I reread it every maybe ten years. It's like Lord of the Rings. I'll go back every fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Go back to the journey. I have to say this to you too. My son and I are about to finish the last Harry Potter book. We're the like last hundred pages now. Uh, it's my second time through the series, his first. And I love it because he's 13 and he's still letting his dad read to him. And I know that th- this is it. Like we're probably coming towards the end of that mm-hmm. uh, era. However, my daughter sometimes gets jealous. Like when we read these longer books, because, you know, the books I read with her will be like Roald Dowell and it'll take us a few weeks where a Harry Potter book will take us a few months just with the amount of time that we have to read. But we've agreed to read, as a family, The Hobbit. So I'm going to get them into Tolkien through The Hobbit. And it's the perfect book because it's very much aimed at a a broader audience. I started with The yeah. Hobbit and then... Uh, I started with The Hobbit. And Fellowship was... I When I read Fellowship, I was about 12 and it was a bit demanding, but I got through it. It's a long book. I had them all compiled into one book. Like a Bible. It's really thick. Oh, see, I had three separate volumes. That's a lot to handle. That's heavy. 1,200 pages, very small print. Yeah, no, thank you. Anyway, that said, uh, I think the train is pulled into the station. I think we're done. Uh, this was a shorter narrative than I thought, but I guess I had everything I needed to say has been said. Well, and you and I talked about this before, too. Like, we've done a lot of episodes that have, I think, on average, we're doing shows that are like an hour long. Yes. Um, we've had some that have gone over and we've had to make them two-parters. But, you know, like with some of our earlier episodes, yeah, I, I know that as we continue to look for story ideas, some of these stories are great, but for us to melt them into an hour just would be ridiculous. I don't want to do that. So Yeah, I don't want to do that. So I like this story. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, I And you're playing to my, uh, in my realm because I love the history stuff. Didn't know this. I knew that Stalin was horrible, but I think it was great. I gave you everything there is, really. That's everything there is. I could have gone on a bit more about collectivization and all that, but I I, I wanted this to be about the island, not about... Well, it's like the the Chinese now, like everything is so hidden. Right. It's hard to get the the full story, even though they've opened up. It's still, uh, there's a lot of uh, fudging and erasing of history. Exactly. So this is as much as I could get. And I think it's a great story and it's spooky. And I feel so bad for those prisoners. Because like I said, a lot of them were just not equipped to deal with that at all, let alone Mm. being in that situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and some of them were violent criminals mixed in there. And they were the ones that rose to the top as always, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't blame any of those people that partook uh, when you're starving. 
you do what you need to do, right? Instincts Ugh, kick I in. Know. It's just so grim. What a grim tale. Thanks for ruining everyone's summer. <laughs> All right, Dan. Uh, I think we're at the end of uh, episode 52. Folks, thank you very much for listening. Do you have any business, Dan? Any business? Just the usual. If you uh, want to follow us on Instagram or Facebook, you can find us there. We post all our pictures from, uh, you know, anytime we re- reference things, uh, different pictures or, you know, images of our stories. And if you're like me and want to look at these things as you're listening, uh, go to either Facebook or Instagram. We are The Weird Podcast and you can find us there. Remember, you can also rate us on uh, certain platforms like the uh, Apple Podcast platform. We love those uh, five-star ratings. We don't like the one-star ratings. We haven't had any. No, we haven't. So don't get any funny ideas, good listener. Don't give us a one-star rating. Yeah, and the only reason that um, long-term we're encouraging ratings is because it will help us eventually maybe get an advertiser or two, which it would be nice to get a little bit of remuneration for what we're doing um, at some point. And I would love that to come from advertisers rather than people. But in the meantime, all you need to do, good listeners, keep on listening and spread the word of the weird. Tell everyone you know. Um, I know I keep saying this, so you better be uh, saying it to everybody to the point where you wear them down. Exactly. Like, just get them to the point where they're like, shut up. Fine. I'll listen to this freaking show if you stop talking about it. And then we'll we're, we'll be all square. Write the word W-Y-R-D in, on a pack of sticky notes and put them everywhere your spouse goes. That's all it takes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like a cool viral campaign where people would post them in public, but no, just in their home. All over the house, on the toilet, in the shower. Yeah. Yeah, on the on the box of Cheerios. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> we do what it takes. Okay, enough. Uh, enjoy your week, folks, and we'll see you next week with episode 53. Good night, everyone. Take care. We're getting a big thunderstorm here.